0: From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. It's a new year, which means a new legislative session. We've heard from the leadership at the General Assembly about their priorities for 2022 but what are some of the state's advocates hoping to accomplish this year? For another perspective, we're talking today with Marcella Bentinker, the director of the Latino Policy Institute at Roger Williams University. We'll talk about some laws she's hoping to get passed in 2022 and how the state should better manage COVID in places like Central Falls. That's after a quick break. Welcome back. I'm here with Marcella Bentenker, the director of the Latino Policy Institute at Roger Williams University. Marcella, thank you for joining us on Rhode Island Report.
1: Thank you, Ed. I'm very excited to be here in the first week of the year.
0: The uh, 2022 legislative session of the Rhode Island General Assembly begins this week, as you know. Uh, What are some of the pieces of legislation you're hoping our lawmakers tackle this year?
1: Yeah, we're really excited uh, as the Latino Policy Institute to. Once again, support several pieces of legislation that we were supportive of last year and that we're hoping uh, can really make it to the finish uh, mark this year. So one of them is uh, cover all kids. And what it would do is it would cover all children under right care that currently are not covered. Many of them due to their immigration status. And this year, we're actually asking Governor McKee to include this in his 2023 fiscal year uh, budget uh, as the Executive Office of Health and Human Services has actually proposed. So it would be a program that would cost less than a million dollars. It would cover uh, a little bit over 300 children in Rhode Island. And as we've seen, public health is something that impacts all of our communities. And so this is a really important program that we're really hoping to push. Yeah. Has
0: Governor McKee agreed to include that in his budget proposal?
1: So we are still waiting to hear from the governor's office, actually. So uh, on behalf of the Latino Policy Institute, Economic Progress Institute, Kids Count and Progreso Latino, we actually sent uh, Governor McKee uh, a letter asking him and encouraging him to include this proposal in his fiscal year 23 budget. So we're hoping to hear from him or connect with him once again now that the new year is here you know, before before this happens. And again, the cost would be a million dollars, but part of that, actually, the one-time cost for kind of like an upgrade within their system.
0: I was interested when uh, Representative Morales proposed this last year to hear that Rhode Island used to have this level of universal coverage, right?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. So we used to have this up to about 2008, you know, for for a long time, we were able to cover every single child in the state of Rhode Island. But it was it was only done through executive order. In between 2006 and 2008, the General Assembly repealed the coverage.
0: Why did they do that? Do you know?
1: They were doing it to save money. And so the General Assembly just repealed it. And it's, it's, you know, it has been a really big issue since then.
0: And what are some of the other priorities? I, I know one of the bills that was on the verge of passing, and I thought they might address in a fall session, although they didn't come back in the fall, was uh, providing driving privileges for undocumented Rhode Islanders.
1: Yes, yes. So that's another big priority for LPI right now. So as part of the Immigrant Coalition, we have been pushing for this legislation for nearly a decade. As you mentioned, in 2021, The Senate actually was able to pass it on the floor, which was the first time it ever happened. Um, And so what we're hoping now as a coalition works with Senator Chacon and Representative Williams is that we can once again get it through not just the Senate, but in the House as well this year.
0: What's the importance of providing those driving privileges to those people?
1: Ensuring that an individual has access to identification in a driver's license will help us uh, not only know who is in, on the roads, but also people will be able to get insurance. It is an issue when people get into accidents it is also an issue because people are maybe driving already without a license you know this is a barrier to get their children to school to the hospital to work themselves and so it is an important issue that we have to address finally we've seen our neighbors across you know not only uh, part of new england and the region doing it but across the country and i think it's, it's something that will be an economic benefit. I know that recently there were some issues about the cost of licenses, right? So what cost this would uh, bring to the DMV?
0: Yeah, yeah. They, I know the House did not pass it and they thought it would cost $7 million. Is that estimate correct?
1: From the coalition's perspective, we don't believe it's correct. That figure that the DMV provided is not very well-backed by actual fiscal data. Rhode Island's population or estimated population of undocumented people is comparable to that that of Delaware, right? So Delaware has implemented this program for licenses for all at a cost for the first year of $102,000, You know, the DMV is claiming that the 30,000 people, which many of them are actually people who are not of driving age, will apply for a license right away. But that is not what we have seen in other parts of the country. One, there will still be a lot of fear and skepticism. There's specific identification information that has to be presented as well as 12 months of uh, taxes that you you have to you know, show that you've paid through, with your ITIN number. And so even a state of Connecticut, so state of Connecticut has three, three, almost four times the size of undocumented individuals in Rhode Island. And the cost for them, for personnel has been $1.3 million.
0: And how many people do you estimate would apply, undocumented residents, do you think would apply for the driving privileges?
1: Um, I would estimate that at least on you know the first few years, maybe 5,000, if we're lucky, would apply.
0: You know, last week I wrote about the long lines of people waiting for COVID tests in your hometown, Central Falls, I was out there on Broad Street. There were lines around the block. What What needs to happen there in Central Falls?
1: Yeah, I also had the the opportunity to actually go see the lines. Um, I was seeing my parents, and my parents actually had to get tested. And, and how
0: long did they have to wait? Uh, at-
1: so my parents actually w- were in a car, um, and they waited maybe thirty minutes in the car. Thankfully, uh, which was good because they both were actually feeling symptoms. They were negative. Well, oh, good. They just had. a you know, a terrible cold. But still, right, the, my parents are in their 60s. They have other conditions. And it was heartbreaking to see lines of children and, and other individuals. We saw people in those lines that are not just re- uh, residents of city, Central Falls. The residents from cities near us, which is, I think that's a wake-up call to every other city and the state in general. The fact that anyone is standing in line for hours is uns- like should be unheard of especially in our cities that have been impacted. We need to make sure that there are at-home kits available for every single resident, not just one box, but more than one. We need to make sure that testing centers and times, the hours that these centers are open, are flexible for the communities that we're seeing. So if we live in a community where people may work a second shift or a third shift, are we tailoring the times around where where people are working? at first centers were going to be open during new year's day like new year's day on january 1st and i'm glad that they were but they were still very limited again this is not okay pcr tests are still taking 4 to 5 days if we're lucky we absolutely need to make sure that The online portals are open, are accessible. But right now, if you go on it, you can't get tested until January 10th, which is a week from today. Finding rapid tests, at least in Providence County, is incredibly difficult. We need to act fast because the next month is going to be really, really difficult for our communities.
0: Yeah, I was glad to see over the weekend Mayor Rivera in Central Falls saying that they were going to create a testing site at the vacant Rite Aid on Broad Street. So I think that'll help get people inside at least and hopefully Provide some more capacity, but you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned the long lines. I, I brought my son down to uh, Providence Career and Technical Academy to get tested over the weekend, and the lines were around the the block. You, you were waiting for hours there. So, yeah, the, a real real lack of capacity there. But you, you, how important is is housing to addressing uh, the health issues that you're highlighting here? Because uh, Dr. Michael Fine, the Central Falls public health uh, advisor, was talking about how, you know, in Central Falls, if someone tests positive, it's very hard to isolate. People are in triple deckers. They're, they're, as you say, they're working in second shift at factories and warehouses and don't have the luxury of, of working from home often.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's the same thing that has been happening for two years. For, for many individuals, it is nearly impossible to, to isolate. I can tell you Anne, from from example in our family, um, my parents live in a one-bedroom apartment. If one of them had tested positive in the last couple of weeks, how would they isolate? You know, one of them can't stay in the room forever. Um, there's one shared bathroom. And that's lucky that there's only two humans in that apartment. We have other family members who... There's multi-generations in one apartment that may have be a two- to three-bedroom apartment. And this is because of several issues, right? Not only the high cost of housing and other issues, but this is also community. This is how our communities live. Then we bring in the issue of testing, right? So let's, let's imagine one person in, this, in a household of five or six test positive. The testing that has to continue after that, the lack of isolation, you know, the misunderstanding and misconception about how long we should isolate for. And I don't think that that part has actually been communicated very thoroughly or well to non-English speaking individuals or just communities of color of how to do it. We're going to see just an incredible impact in the next month in our communities.
0: Yeah. What's, what's your message to Governor McKee about what needs to happen to address the, uh, the surge in, in coronavirus cases that we're seeing in cent- cities like Central Falls.
1: Again, continuing to increase access to free testing at different times and different hours in different methods rapidly is incredibly important, right? Just off the bat, continuing to push vaccination rates. You can do so many things at once. We need to message boosting. We need to message uh, testing, but we also need to message what procedures and processes are in not just in the languages that our community needs, but in a manner that reaches our communities, right? It's Communicating is not the language, just the language, but also in the way that we're doing it. I'm incredibly proud of uh, Mayor Rivera because she is in the community.
0: Yeah, I saw a shot of Mayor Rivera over at Jenks Parks Pediatrics with a face shield on helping out.
1: Yeah, and that's just how she is. That's it. She, she loves being on set with people. However, not everyone has the access to have a mayor like Mayor Rivera. So we have other great mayors in other cities that need to do that. But more importantly, we have a governor who has the duty to do this with every like every part of the state, not just the city of Central Falls, but everyone else.
0: Uh, So the State Redistricting Commission has been considering proposed new maps for the House and Senate districts. They'll be meeting later this week. And what's your analysis of how the maps would impact those states Latino communities?
1: Yeah, that part is something that we are really keeping an eye on because, you know, 20 years ago, we did have our current Secretary of State did, um, uh, at that point with other team members, uh, you know, have to have to sue about the maps. And so it is something that the Latino Policy Institute is definitely keeping an eye on, not only for the statewide maps, but also more importantly in the next few months for municipal maps. So how are, you know, how are city council seats going to be determined in cities like Central Falls, or Providence, or Pawtucket, or Woonsocket, Cranston? Um, So it's something that we're definitely keeping an eye on. We are very grateful to have partners like Common Cause and the ACLU to be uh, a voice in, in a lot of these places. And we're working with other national organizations to make sure that we're studying what the maps are looking like, as well as comparing it to the, to the Latino population growth, according to the census.
0: Do you expect any litigation around what's proposed right now?
1: As of right now, we're not. that is not something that we have talked about. But again, we have time.
0: Given the, the large Latino population of Providence, are you surprised that there are not more Latino legislators?
1: You know, that's a really interesting question because I'm surprised and disappointed that more of the city of Providence doesn't look like it's you know what their, its residents look like. However, we also do have to acknowledge that power is usually held by a few. And that comes with money and that comes with influence. And it is incredibly difficult for individuals that are Latino, that are other, you know, individuals of color that may not come from money, that may not hold jobs that are flexible to be able to run for office. This is something that I've actually discussed with several people who have thought of running or want to run. Somebody who wants to be a state representative or state senator would need to have a job that allows them to leave their job from January through June at about three o'clock and then won't have a conflict with, you know, whatever they're doing at the statehouse with their job. Sadly, not a lot of us have that luxury.
0: I know you've been involved in the Let Rhode Island Vote campaign. What, what does that legislation entail and what are its prospects for this legislative session?
1: Yeah, the bill actually increases access to early to early voting and mail voting. It also secures and modernizes and streamlines mail and early voting process, which after 2020 is something that we really, really need. In 2020, when many of us were able to vote by mail, because of executive order, we didn't need to have to witness signatures in our mail. However, if we do not pass this legislation this year, In 2022, either for the primary or general election that we'll have this year, if you got used to voting how you did in 2020 and you do not have two signatures, two witness signatures in your mail ballot, that mail ballot, it won't be valid. And that's going to be a really big issue.
0: Yeah, the Republican Party brought this all the way to the Supreme Court uh, last year, saying that uh, the waiving of the two witnesses or notary public requirements for mail ballots might lead to voter fraud. What do you say to that?
1: Yeah, and I think that what I say to that is right now, uh, the only other states aside from Rhode Island that require this witness signature are Alabama and North Carolina, right? So there's only three of us out of the 50 states that require this. Um, Also, you know, Rhode Island does signature matching when we have mail ballots. So the fear that is instilled by the Republican Party or others, you know, it's it's not based on what we have seen be successful, not only in in 2020 in Rhode Island, but throughout other parts of the country, including red states.
0: You know, this podcast will air on January 6th. So give us your thoughts on the first anniversary of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol.
1: It is really heartbreaking that it has been an entire year since the insurrection, when many of us uh, were frozen in front of our televisions or our phones, Seeing what was happening, I remember distinctly thinking it wasn't, it couldn't be real because you, this is something you only see on movies. After a year has passed, there is a part of me that is really afraid and sad that we have not learned as a nation how important our democracy is to continuing to be the, the country that we believe ourselves to be. And democracy means ensuring that every single person that can vote does, with little to no hurdles, that the fact that our people who run our government um, are held accountable for their actions. And it is really, really concerning that there are still people out there who don't think this was a big deal.
0: So we've covered a lot of ground today. Marcella, what's your uh, hopes for the Latino community in Rhode Island for 2022?
1: For 2022, I hope that our Latino community receives the investments that we have deserved for many many years and I hope those investments come not only in an increase of affordable housing and a real big push to you know improve our education system in our in different districts but i also hope that the latino community the needs of the latino community the importance of the Latino community becomes not a secondary thought to our elected officials, our business owners, and our decision makers. I think and I hope that it is time that we become a priority, we become part of the table, not just a secondary thought.
0: Marcella Bentenker, Happy New Year, and thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much, Ed. Happy New Year.
0: Here are some more stories to check out this week in Globe Island. My colleague Alexa Gigas has been keeping an eye on the proposed merger between Lifespan and Care New England. Her latest article digs into the merger application to answer your questions about the plan. Alexa also has a cool story about an app that's designed to prevent food waste. good to go connects Rhode Islanders with local businesses that have unsold food at the end of the day. Customers get deals on everything from pizza to fresh vegetables. Be sure to read a story by Brian Amaral about how Governor McKee has been saying the state was ramping down on COVID in the lead up to Thanksgiving. But a confidential internal state report shows that a little more than a week before Thanksgiving, the state's own analysis warned COVID was spreading rapidly in Rhode Island. Find these stories and more at globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Got a tip? Have someone you think we should talk to? We'd love to hear your ideas. Send us an email at rinews@globe.com. at globe.com. And if you like the show, do us a favor. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all anytime and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org/passport. That's ripbs.org/passport.